Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, understanding the heterogeneity of endometrial cancer. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Merck Sharp and Dome. In this first podcast of our three-part series, Dr. Bradley Monk and Dr. Bhavana Pothori discuss the heterogeneity of endometrial cancer and its four molecular classifications. How do these classifications help determine patient treatment plans? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Monk is a professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine and the Creighton University School of Medicine in Phoenix. He is also USA Director and Principal Investigator of Community Research Development at the Honor Health Research Institute in Scottsdale, Arizona, as well as Vice President and Member of the Board of Directors of the Gynecologic Oncology Group Foundation and Co-Director of GOG Partners. Dr. Pothuri is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the NYU School of Medicine, the Medical Director of CTO Perlmutter Cancer Center, and the Director of Gynecologic Oncology Clinical Trials at NYU Lagone Health Perlmutter Cancer Center in New York City. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Monk will begin our discussion. Greetings and welcome. My name is Brad Monk. I'm a gynecologic oncologist here from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, We have two medical schools here in Phoenix, the University of Arizona, which is not in Tucson, we're in Phoenix, and Creighton University, which is not in Omaha, we're here at Phoenix. And it's my pleasure to be here with my uh, really good friend and one of the smartest people I know. Go ahead, Bob, and introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm Bhavana Pathuri. I'm a GYN oncologist at NYU Langone um, Medical School, and I um, also serve as the um, Clinical Trials Office Medical Director and um, work very closely with Dr. Monk um, in the GOG, and I'm pleased to be um, speaking with you all about endometrial cancer today. Yeah, that's a great segue. So we're going to talk about uterine corpus cancer that's epithelial, that's carcinoma, endometrial carcinoma, as you outlined. So I think all of you know uh, that last year there were about 66,000 new cases. It is now by far the most common gynecologic malignancy, and uh, it will soon be the most lethal. Um, uh, Last year, uh, there was 12,940 deaths. Uh, Globally, it's more than 97,000 deaths. That's a terrible situation. Um, Bob, why don't we go ahead and start with the surgical treatment? What's the appropriate surgical treatment for endometrial cancer? Yeah, so most endometrial cancers present with vaginal bleeding, um, and most are your garden variety or endometrioid type, um, and they usually present at an early stage. Um, When they come to see uh, a gynecologic oncologist, usually we offer them surgery uh, as the standard treatment. Um, So that's removal of the uterus, the cervix, both tubes and ovaries, as well as um, a sentinel lymph node where we inject a dye into the cervix and see where it goes and remove the most likely affected lymph nodes. Um, 
In some cases, when patients are either too sick to undergo surgery, we can offer them um, more conservative treatments such as radiation and um, in select cases, hormonal therapies. And then in more advanced disease, we can offer them um, chemotherapy um, and other um, treatment options. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then there's a fertility sparing option. Uh, you know, it never made any sense to me is that a woman wants to get pregnant, so let's put an IUD in her. Um, because obviously <laughs> the purpose of an intrauterine device is contraception, but I get it, it has less side effects from systemic hormones. We're not going to get into all of that. But so endometrial cancer traditionally has been staged. Uh, the stage obviously is surgical. Uh, it's been updated based on the depth of myometrial invasion, uh, uh, cervical extension stage two, and then nodal uh, ultimately stage 3C. Um, but, uh, you know, histology has been also an important sort of way we look at them. Uh, so endometrioid tumors that under the microscope look endometrioid, serous, which under the microscope have sort of a, a, a tubal uh, a phenotype, and then obviously clear cell uh, mucinous and even some other rare histologies. But ultimately, ultimately, in uh, 2013, hard to imagine, nine years ago, published in Nature, was the Cancer Genome Atlas Research Network. Tell us about the now the molecular classification beyond surgical stage, beyond histopathology, and now we can look at the tumor from a molecular standpoint. Yeah, so... Um... You know, as you alluded to, the TCGA was instrumental in identifying the four um, clinically significant molecular subgroups um, that had very um, differing clinical prognoses, and those include the ones with poly mutations, um, the microsatellite instability high or MSI high, or DMMR, which is mismatch repair deficient, um, and then the copy number low. Um, and the copy number high. And so, you know, I think these are really important because they really um, categorize our endometrial cancers into these very specific buckets where they each behave differently. So for instance, the poly mutated endometrial cancers have a very good prognosis. And there are studies that are actually looking at, you know, eliminating treatment, um, adjuvant treatment in these patients. Um, the microsatellite instability high um, or the deficient mismatch repair um, category are tumors that respond exquisitely to checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapy um, and have kind of an intermediate prognosis. And along with that are the copy number low, um, which usually are our typical endometrioid grade one to two tumors um, and also have um, uh, intermediate prognosis. And then finally, we have the, you know, the worst actors or the um, copy number high and, you know, patients that um, have typically the serous tumors, um, and usually those tumors um, overexpress uh, P53. So those are the P53 mutant tumors. Yeah, I, I love that explanation. I, I love this idea that they're both prognostic and predictive, that the pole ultra-mutated tumors have a better prognosis where de-escalation is possible, and they're also exquisitely sensitive, not from the MSI perspective to checkpoint inhibitors, but because of the 
TMB, it's not uncommon to see a, a 90, 100, 150 mutations per kilobase in that setting. Uh, in the MSI ultra mutated, now there's two different ways that they can be microsatellite unstable or instability, DMMR, if you will. Uh, they can either be epigenetically silenced or uh, mutated. So tell us, tell me about those two uh, different uh, opportunities. Yeah. So um, I think what you, you know, what we're trying to really um, talk about is the majority of the um, tumors that fit into that bucket are actually the ones that are epigenetically, that have epigenetic loss. And that's typically with loss of MLH1. And about 70% of um, the um, DMMR slash MSI cohort are comprised of the epigenetic loss. And the other 30% are usually due to um, somatic mutations. So mutations in one of the mismatch repair genes, MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, or PMS. And, you know, there's been some, um, I think what's so interesting about this, um, you know, categorization is there were, there has been some early data that may suggest that the checkpoint inhibitors may be less effective in the ones that um, have epigenetic loss, but those were done in very small subsets. And, and most recently the um, Garnett data um, looked at this very question and, and it was presented at the recent um, IGCS meeting in New York um, this past September, and um, there was actually um, no difference in efficacy noted um, based on whether it was due to an epigenetic loss versus a somatic mutation. Um, and so um, I think there's more to come on that, but I think um, it's important to understand that, um, you know, it can be due to either one of these mechanisms. But I think most important is that, you know, all our endometrial cancers should now be tested for um, with um, mismatch repair IHC um, and or MSI. And, you know, the NCC and, you know, guidelines actually um, very clearly state this. Yeah, that's great. And routinely, I would also do P53 using immunohistochemistry uh, because that would help us understand if it's a copy number high. I would also do estrogen receptor and progesterone IHC, which isn't exclusively copy number low, but it sort of helps further divide that into that setting. So, you know, one of the things that you've taught me, uh, obviously, we talked about stage, we talked about histologic subtype, we talked about molecular classification, but it's ultimately the fifth, which is the most emerging, is the ethnic diversity and differences in endometrial cancer, something that you're very passionate about. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's great, Brad. Um, but before I go on, I also want to add that um, something else that we um, have recently incorporated doing is in all our high-grade tumors, we're also testing for um, HER2. So we're doing um, HER2 IHC. Um, Bingo. I love that. Thank you for that. That's because trastuzumab is NCCN recommended. Exactly. I love it. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So now that's incorporated and also, right, um, trastuzumab is NCCN recommended based on Dr. Amanda Nichols-Fader's phase two data, which showed benefit PFS and OS benefit. Um, and there's GYO26 that's actually looking more closely at a combination of uh, trastuzumab and pertuzumab with chemotherapy in endometrial cancer. So, um, so for those reasons, and there's also really 
you know, there's some amazing um, clinical trials out there that are looking at small molecule inhibitors such as tocatinib, um, as well as the emerging HER2 ADCs where our patients can benefit even, may benefit even if they have low expression. So, um, you know, we've certainly added that. And I was so excited to get to the diversity, but you can also <laughs> study. And we're doing the CDK4-6 and hormonally driven copy number low tumors. But tell tell us about this diversity issue. It, it, it is one of the sort of least understood where the type of cancer that a woman gets might differ based on her ethnic background. Yeah, no, the, I mean, this obviously, right, this is so important because we've noted um, increase um, in incidence and mortality in endometrial cancer. Um, and there was a recent publication in the Green Journal um, that showed that the mortality of endometrial cancer is now approaching that of ovarian cancer and will likely soon um, surpass that. So, so I think, um, you know, these are real issues and, and we need, and one of the, um, reasons that we're seeing this is that um, it's it's because of um, the higher incidence um, of higher risk histologic subtypes that we're seeing in the non-Hispanic Black population. And we know that when Black women are two times more likely to die of uterine cancer. We know that the five-year survival rates are 84% for white patients, 63% for Black women. Um, and, and we know that like since 2015 to 2019, the deaths from uterine cancer have been increasing by 1% every year. So, um, and this is a lot of this is related to, you know, the um, trends that we're seeing in terms of um, the um, increase in Black patients. And and, you know, it's not just um, what we call the social determinants of health, you know, which which is really, you know, the condition and the environment where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's really, you know, access to like the economic, the education, the healthcare access, the neighborhood, the social and community. But it goes, it, you know, these are some of the reasons, but there are also these biologic reasons, right? Um, we're seeing a higher incidence of um, uterine serous cancers, and those um, tend to have a higher risk of CCNE aberrations, which you know we know have much worse prognoses. Um, in addition, there is a higher proportion of carcinosarcomas among Black patients. Um, so I think understanding that there are you know there are reasons that are biologic, but there are also these social determinants of health, which are leading to delays in diagnoses, less likely to receive standard of care, less likely to access clinical trials are all adding to um, this problem. And in addition, you know, the obesity epidemic where we're seeing rising rates of obesity, which also affect our um, black population, um, and uh, is also contributing um, to this increase um, that we're seeing. Yeah, so if I was to pick one word, one word to describe endometrial cancer, it would be heterogeneous. Okay, they're not all treated the same up front with surgery. We talked about it. They're not, they don't all have the same histologic subtype, molecular characteristics, and ethnicity matters. And you know what that means? That means they should be treated differently. And, and I, I really appreciate your efforts. Uh, both of us have the opportunity to participate in the GOG Foundation, and, and you lead uh, a group, an initiative, 
to ensure to our very best ability that the studies that we do, that we have a, a diversity plan, that we actually have a plan to enroll patients of ethnic diversity and, and to have a plan not only to get it done, but also to help interpret that because unfortunately, most of the trials that we do, not only in GOG Foundation, but throughout oncology are predominantly Caucasian white. And so we really need to do a better job. I appreciate you know, that what, what you're doing. Now, next, I want to talk about sort of the uh, established uh, systemic therapy, the chemotherapy. Uh, we've been working on this for a very long time uh, within the GOG, as you know, and, um, and, and, and other groups. But, you know, the first sort of opportunity that we uh, had a survival advantage was a triplet versus a doublet, GOG-177. Uh, that showed that the triplet, platinum, taxane, doxorubicin was better. Uh, and ultimately, we had to do a non-inferiority trial of this taxane, doxorubicin, platinum versus carboplatin, paclitaxel called GOG-209. So I think that has evolved into the standard treatment now, given the caveats that you said, adding trastuzumab in the front line uh, when, when, when appropriate. So why don't you tell us the role now of radiation as an adjuvant, again, first line, you do a hysterectomy as we've talked about it, you've categorized the tumor in the categories that we just said. You say, look, she has risk of systemic spread, I'm gonna give her chemotherapy. But what's the role of radiation in newly diagnosed endometrial cancer. Yeah, so um, you know, typically um, I utilize the GOG um, high intermediate risk criteria and the high risk criteria to determine whether I'm going to give vaginal brachytherapy. And usually, what if patients meet the GOG 99 criteria, which is based on the LVSI, the age, and the depth of invasion. Um, so utilizing local factors, then um, I will refer them to my radiation oncologist and they will typically get um, three fractions um, weekly of vaginal brachytherapy. And if um, they meet the high-risk criteria where there's cervical stromal involvement or other you know, higher risk factors, then they may um, receive pelvic radiation. Um, I typically tend to use um, chemotherapy for nodal disease. Um, I am not a proponent of utilizing um, the uh, combination of um, radiation and uh, chemotherapy. Um, as you know, I don't think that the data really justifies it. Um, but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are, Brad, in terms of um, the PORTEC data and how you utilize um, chemotherapy and radiation in the um, the nodal, uh, like the 3C1 and the 3C2 population. You know, it's remarkable how similar we are in our practice patterns. And so, you know, PORTEC sort of had the wrong control arm. Uh, the control arm should have been, you know, chemotherapy. Exactly. It wasn't. And so I, I just don't know how to interpret it. Doesn't mean that it, it, it wasn't a good study, but GOG-122 definitively showed, in my opinion, that chemotherapy was better, superior to actually whole abdominal radiation. And then we wrote a sort of an ancillary study with if you just had one positive node, 3C1, one node, chemotherapy was still better because the risk of distant failures was significant. Now, if you want to layer in some vaginal brachytherapy, that's fine. Um, you, you know, I was struck from the frontline treatment 
um, uh, this year at the International Gynecologic Cancer Society that, that there was a study done that added chemotherapy to radiation in the setting of a vaginal recurrence. And, and many of those patients did not have vaginal brachytherapy. And it, it, it sort of stands alone in the only tumor type that we treat where chemotherapy did not approve outcome. If you have a cervical cancer, basically you give chemotherapy. If you have a vulvar cancer, you give chemotherapy. Even if you have an anal cancer, you give chemotherapy with radiation, with radiation. Do you have any idea why that study did not um, improve outcomes when chemotherapy is added to uh, pelvic radiation in the setting of a cuff recurrence? Do you have any idea why that was negative? Yeah, no, that it, it's that's very it was very interesting to see that um, you know, there was no difference. Um, and I know you've thought a lot about it, Brad. What are, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it should have worked. I, 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 I love the I love the pivot. You know, I had I had no idea. And and you know, I'm I'm a big proponent and uh in con- concurrent uh, chemotherapy with radiation. And, and and I don't know I don't know why it didn't work. And that study, as you know, is known as two thirty eight, and was presented by Ann Klopp from MD Anderson. So that will that study will never be uh, repeated. Um, and it was probably one of the most practice changing presentations that I've seen uh, this year. So yeah, I would agree. Even though um, even though it was negative, I think it was um, it really will right. Um, right. It will all have us do the right thing when we are treating patients like that, and utilize yeah. radiation alone. So I hundred percent agree. But uh, yeah, one of the other heterogeneity things that I want to talk about, and then we'll close this out, is age. So we have an aging population, and many of these copy number high patients. Uh, are, I hate to use the word elderly because, you know, every year I get closer to that, whatever that threshold is, but they're older. They're they're older and uh, that matters. And not only does it matter because of their age, but they have concurrent medications. Any comments on the importance of age in these newly diagnosed patients? Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, they are um, getting older. um, And, you know, I, I honestly am seeing um, patients who are much older and, you know, you'll be, you'll be like surprised. I just put a 90 year old on one of my clinical trials with endometrial cancer. So um, I think it just goes to show you that, you know, given that these patients are older, they do have many more medical comorbidities um, and which makes um, treating them a little more challenging. Um, And and especially with many of the newer therapies that we have approved um, where uh, things like, um, you know, lenvatinib, which is a TKI and causes hypertension, like we have to be, you know, that much more careful as we are prescribing these therapies to, uh, to our patients. And I get it, it's functional age, right? But, but still, my dad is almost 90 and he's in great shape, but he's still almost 90. Yep. So, I mean, it, 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 no, one, no one leaves this place alive. So this has been a great discussion on heterogeneity of endometrial cancer, just to review. Uh, obviously, uh, surgical stage. Stage is one of the most powerful prognostic factors and determines treatment. Uh, Traditionally, histologic subtype. Histologic subtype, I think, still has value. Um, But more importantly, is the molecular signature, the four molecular uh, categorizations that you described. Again, not only 
prognostic, in other words, how the patient's going to do, but predictive of treatments such as checkpoint inhibitors and uh, hormonal therapy. And then emerging, obviously, is diversity. We need to study the treatments among the patients that are going to get it in sort of a real-world evidence opportunity. And then now number five, age. And that's perhaps the least well-studied, and maybe, maybe that's your next uh, opportunity, Bob, is to begin to study patients who are older. And we've done this a little bit in ovarian cancer. Uh, we've done it, I don't even think hardly at all in endometrial cancer, so maybe we can take that as an action item. So uh, on behalf of Dr. Pathuri and myself, Brad Monk, uh, it's been my pleasure to be with you. Thank you for your attention. I hope uh, you learned at least a little bit. I know I learned from listening to Dr. Pothuri. Thank you and so long for now. And I always learn listening from you, Brad. It's been great. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endometrial3. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.